0: Well, um, I think that it's important as we read Matthew 19, uh, we'll come back to it and, and look at it. But first, let's just listen to the situation that's happening in Matthew chapter 19. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? to put her away and he said moses because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives from the beginning it was not so and i say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery and his disciples said to him if such is the case of the man and his wife it is better not to marry And he said, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been uh, made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Loaded, loaded passage. Uh, In fact, one of the advantages and blessings of expository teaching, which means we take a book of the Bible like the book of Matthew and we teach all the way through, is that we're not dodging the hard topics. We're not only teaching on the things that uh, are easy and comfortable and and, uh, everyone can agree upon. We're teaching some of these difficult things because that's what life is. Life deals with all of these situations and Jesus doesn't shy away from any of these things. And I wanna begin with this question as we consider this. Whose kingdom? Whose kingdom? That question of of whose kingdom it is really has a lot to do with the the theme of the book of Matthew. Now the book of Matthew, we know that that, uh, it's uh, the king And his kingdom. So who's the king? It's Jesus. So whose kingdom is it? It's his kingdom, right? So in his kingdom, he makes the rules. In his kingdom, he he gives life. In his kingdom, he gives grace. In his kingdom, he administers justice. But really, it's his kingdom, so I can't simply look to God's word to fit into my paradigm. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, Um, many of you know uh, what is called the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught the disciples to pray. He said, pray in this way. Our Father, uh, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, not my kingdom, not your kingdom, his kingdom. It's your kingdom, God. it's, It's your will that should be done. So with that, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus went on to say this. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. So if we uh, concern ourselves primarily with Jesus's kingdom, with his righteousness, doing the things that would please him, doing things his way, then, then we can trust that he's going to take care of everything else, in fact, the verse right after that says, uh, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough problems or worries of its own, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I think that sometimes when it comes to looking to God's word, how many of you have heard that um, these these phrases, that that this is my roadmap? You ever hear that? Or it's uh, my guidebook, or, or maybe it's uh, God's plan for my life, or all of these things which in many ways are true, but really that's not the only truth of it. This is God's word. So I have to look at it in the context of what God wants to say to me, not what do I want to hear from God. That's the difference between God and Google, right? As far as when we seek God. I mean, can you imagine writing in Google like a, a question like, hey, you know, what should I do about this investment in 2000?" 14 and you you type in your investment and can you imagine google says your problem is that you lust in your heart you need to deal with lust and you're reading it like i didn't search for that you know so you do the search again and all of a sudden it comes up your problem is lust you have lust in your heart you see sometimes we want god's word to be like google we're looking for answers to our problem to what we're going through and god says no if you take the context of my word i have something to say now he does speak to us, and we can look in the Bible for different passages that speak to our situation. But I'll tell you what, when we just take God's word for what it is, he gives us his message. So that's why I asked the question at the outset, whose kingdom is it? Because when we ask the question whose kingdom it is, we often say Lord when we pray. Lord, and yet when I say Lord, am I really, am I really treating God more like my servant to do what I want him to do. Because when I come to him and I say, Lord, what I'm saying is by definition of that, he's the one that, that makes the decisions and I am his servant trying to obey what he calls me to do. And yet so many times as, as believers and even as people that maybe are just seeking and you're not sure, but, but looking for this designer God to fit into my paradigm and what I want him to do. So my question is, this morning, whether we are married or divorced or single, we're asking for God's guidance, we're asking for God's help. What is our motive in asking? Is it really about God's kingdom or really is it, God, I I want you to fit my paradigm? Because the Pharisees, when they asked Jesus about these questions, it says that they asked him, testing him. Now they didn't come. There, there wasn't a Pharisee that came that said, "Jesus, I am really struggling in my own marriage. Could you help me to know how to be a better husband, or help me to know how to deal with this?" No, they were they were looking at trapping him. They were looking at just testing him. So, what is my motive in asking whether married, divorced, or single? So, let's consider this testing of Jesus. It says in. Matthew 19, 1, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. Now, Jesus now, for the first time in the book of Matthew, leaves Galilee and comes to the region of Judea. I want you to think of geographically, um, this is like leaving, you know, Santa Cruz, going down the coast to santa barbara or or you know just uh, the distance maybe not quite as much but going down the the coast or going to jerusalem now as he goes to jerusalem the elevation is up he gets there and it's a very religious community it's um it's a a place where if you go to jerusalem today you'll find a lot of different philosophies a lot of arguing in fact when it, you look at Jerusalem divided into its sectors, you're gonna find that you, know, you have a Muslim quarter and you have a Jewish quarter and you have a Christian quarter. You have, you have these different factions and it was like that in Jesus's time. So he comes there to this region of Judea and even though the other gospels explain that Jesus had gone there many times before, the book of Matthew, the author chooses just to kind of focus on this time because it's all about the king and his kingdom. And Jesus very shortly uh, from here is really going to be betrayed and it's going to lead to his crucifixion. But when he comes there, there are people that are, are testing him. And and again, he healed many people and there were great multitudes following him, but it doesn't say that that healing necessarily brought faith and obedience. I think that's really interesting that sometimes we think uh, if Jesus just did a miracle, if I just saw a miracle, then, then I'd follow. But yet There were times when Jesus healed people and they still didn't follow him. But in verse three, it says, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So they're putting God to the test. And really, I want you to understand that his answer would determine their approval. How many times do we ask God, God, what is your answer on this? And that will determine my approval rating for you. Or I, I might become a Christian or I might follow Christ, but here's a couple of key issues that I'm voting on in my life. And if Jesus lines up with these voting issues of how I spend money or my sexuality or or what I want to do in the future, if he lines up, then I vote for him. If he doesn't line up, I don't vote for him. And really what ends up happening is his answer de- determines our approval and and I want you to notice that in our culture today, people are looking for a designer God. Um, they they talk about today, you know, there's designer drugs, for example. It, it's no longer just the, the drug of what it is, but it's mixing this drug with another drug and and there's this effect. People do that with God. And, and they try to form God in their own image. Now you think, well, I don't have any idols. You know, at home, I don't have a statue that I bow down to. But let me explain what that idolatry looks like in our culture today. It looks like me saying, okay, God, I want you to bless me in these preconceived notions and these ideas that I want my life to to be like. And so I'm looking for a God that fits this paradigm. And so it used to be that people would go to Buddhism or they would go to Islam or they would go to many different religions to kind of figure out which religion is best for them. But you know what people do today? They, they, they just say, I'm just gonna pick and choose the parts from every religion that I like. And it's God as I understand him because I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And you know what? Really, many times that's a cop-out. That's a, a way of saying, what I really want is I want God's benefits and blessings, but I don't want God's commandments and commitments. So I just want these benefits and blessings, but not the commandments and the commitments. And Jesus here, they're putting him to the test. Now, as they put him to the test, I want you to turn with me back to the book of Deuteronomy because in the context of asking these questions, it's the fifth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, they knew the Bible very well. Remember, I told you this was a religious community. So what they were doing is they were referring back to the Old Testament law. And in Deuteronomy, this is what it says. Now Moses here um, has, has recorded God's law and it says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, I wanna say we are not gonna go in depth to look at the context of the Old Testament law as much this morning in Deuteronomy 24. But it's really important that we have that as the backdrop because in Jesus's time in the first century, there were two rabbis, two scholars, two teachers that really had two schools of thought that in Jerusalem you could find historically these two schools of thought really um, were the main mindset for marriage and divorce. Now, let me explain them. The first one was a guy named uh, Rabbi Shammai. Now, Rabbi Shammai taught this. He taught that divorce was for sexual immorality. That was the reason. That was a valid um, reason to to get a divorce. And so that was a more conservative um, viewpoint. But I want you to also see that there was another rabbi named Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel taught you could be divorced for really any reason. Now, in California today, what is this called? It's called no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce means that uh, you don't have to, it doesn't matter whose fault, there's no fault. It's just, you, if you decide, you wake up one morning and you say, you know what, I'm just, I, I was in love and somehow I fell out of love. I was in love and then all of a sudden I fell out of love with you. So I'm going to get a divorce for that reason. In this no-fault divorce, Rabbi Hillel kind of taught that. And it's important to understand that that was the popular view of divorce. I think that's the popular view of divorce today. It's really for, for any reason. Now, Rabbi Shammai had a more conservative viewpoint that divorce was only for sexual immorality. The Pharisees weren't really coming to Jesus for a correct interpretation. They were testing him. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to cause this controversy. If Jesus is more conservative and goes with Rabbi Shammai and says, hey, it's only for sexual immorality, he goes against the general population, the majority of the people. If he goes along with what the majority are teaching and the majority are saying, then those that were like biblical scholars and more conservative would say, "Jesus, you are not a real rabbi." In other words, they were trying to get him in a, a no win situation now, when Jesus answers them i I absolutely love his answer because really what Jesus says to them, and remember these guys are are biblical scholars, right um, jesus says don't you read your Bible, okay?" <laughs> He, he just looks at them and says, don't you? Look what he says in verse four. He answered and said to them, have you not read? Now, of course they've read. He's gonna quote from the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. It's Adam and Eve, it's the first marriage. And he looks at them and he says, have you not read? And I think it's a good question for us because sometimes we could easily go to a person to say, hey, give me some advice. What should I do? And and we could even sometimes cater it to go to a person that we think is gonna give the advice that we wanna hear. And I think that sometimes God would say to us, have you not read? Like if you just read the word, and there are many things that are explicit in the Bible. So Jesus said, don't you read your Bible? He said, from the beginning, from the beginning, he made them male and female. Again, staying in the Old Testament here, Um, Go to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I want you to pick up with me in chapter 2. When I do weddings, um, I often just begin the wedding with talking about Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 through 25. Let's read this um, because Jesus wanted them not to go. and, And notice Jesus didn't quote Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai. He didn't say, well, this rabbi says this and this rabbi said." he says, have you not read? Go back to the Bible. And so in Genesis two, verse 18, it says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam "'Gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, "'and to every beast of the field. "'But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. "'And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, "'and he slept. "'He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. "'Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, "'he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. "'And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones "'and flesh of my flesh. "'She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man.' Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So Jesus says, have you not read? Let's go back to the beginning. One of the things that we see is that God said in the beginning, it was not good that man would be alone. It's the first time in the the creation account that God said it was not good. Now, We'll get into singleness in, in you know a couple of weeks. And and God does call some people to be single. And if that's the case, it's really for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's not just because you don't like commitment. It's because God has a purpose in that singleness. Now, for the majority, the great majority of people, whether it would be in our country or any other country, people get married. For the majority. Now, there's exceptions, but one of the things is that God said it's good for man not to be alone. Now, if you're single, it doesn't mean that you're a lone ranger. It means that God still wants you to be in community with others, but in that marriage relationship, I want you to notice that when God created Eve, he said, I will make him a helper comparable to him. So God said, I'm going to make Adam, I'm going to make him a helper. Now, maybe you're thinking, hey, that, that's really derogatory towards women because are we just helpers? Is that it? Think of it this way. God's saying he needs some help. Okay, so because he needs some help, you know, you need to help him because this guy, he needs help. And, and really, that's the case. Uh, I, I believe that with all of my heart. I mean, I, I know that. We need help. And, and because of this, it says that God created them. It says in God's word, God made them. And as God made them, he made them male and female. Now that's a very, very important thing to know in our culture today, that God made them male and female. Now, this is such um, a loaded issue. It's so convoluted with political and personal and social undertones. And yet, when we just take God's word for God's word, it's very simple. He made men and he made women there are differences and because there are differences we 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 need to realize that in the androgynous society that we live in where it says you are whatever you feel like being you are whatever you want to say that you are if you want to be a woman today you could be a woman and therefore the schools must allow you into the women's restroom because you say that you're a woman or you could go into the you know vice versa and that's the mindset today. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about, I'm not going the whole route of everything that that, that has uh, in, in the connotations of it, but I think it is important to realize that because of the blurring of, of roles today, that really people say it, there's no difference. Men and women are just the same. It's whatever you feel like. That it actually leads to um, degradation many times of women. Because the way that they show that they're a woman is by body. Because if there's no other distinctions as far as personality or roles or, or anything else, then the only distinction is anatomical. And if the only distinction is anatomical, then in order to show yourself a woman in this culture, the, the media or the advertisers would say, well, then you have to dress this way or look this way because this is what a woman is. And so while we live in a world today that says, oh, we've never been farther as far as women's rights and equality, I actually think that we've gone backwards in many ways by this degradation of women, saying that the only thing that, that defines a woman is, is her body and what she looks like. So what does that mean? In Scripture, there are two different views that people take, and, and they and really, scripture, I believe, teaches one of them, but some people interpret it another way. And, and I'm gonna give you the words just so that you're equipped to be able to deal with this in intellectual circles, um, even even some theological circles. There is complementarianism, and, and there's egalitarianism. Complementarian means, it means that we complement one another. And really, that's what bi- the Bible teaches, because it says that he made man and he made woman. Now, if she was a helper, that means that she became a compliment, not compliment with an eye like, hey, you look nice, Adam, um, not, but compliment like a uh, complimentary angles. They complete each other. She comes alongside, he comes alongside of her and we're complementarian. Um, we help each other. There are areas of, of my life, areas of my personality, areas of me as a man that I, I need Deanna to help me in those areas where I'm not good at. And there are areas where Deanna needs me to come alongside of her and to help her as well. There's another view today that even is in the church and and some Christians believe this. I'm not calling these people non-Christians because they believe this, but I I just don't think it's scriptural. Um, Egalitarian means equal. But my question is, does equal mean same? Now we are equal, It says in the New Testament, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek because the wall has been broken down in Christ. We're all Christians. But let me ask you, is a Jewish person and a Greek person exactly the same? No, a Jewish person was was born as a, a Jew. A Greek person was born as a Greek. Their DNA doesn't change when they become Christians. What it's saying in the New Testament is this, We're all equal in God's eyes as far as our value and our worth. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter um, if you're a male or, or a female. We are all equal as far as value and God's love for each one of us. But there are still distinctions and differences, which are great. Those distinctions, the diversity in the body of Christ, it's a great thing. So complementarian means that I believe the scripture teaches that there are two distinct roles. And because of that, I think it's important to understand when they ask Jesus about marriage, and and people today, here's the controversial thing. If you go from age 29 and below, it's about 75%, even from people that were, you know, um, raised in a Christian home, going to church, evangelical Christians, that when it comes to gay marriage, Age 29 is kind of the marker. It used to be age 25, but age 29 is like that 75% barrier where people 29 and below say that gay marriage is okay. And people above 29, for the most part, that come from Christian churches say that it's not. So if we are going to talk about that, not, not just the political ramifications, but if we go to Jesus, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, well, let's look at the polls. He doesn't say, you know what, let's vote on it. They, the Pharisees were coming to Jesus saying, hey, what do you think? What do you think about marriage? And Jesus said, let's go all the way back into the beginning. Have you not read your Bible? <laughs> is what Jesus is saying. God created them male and female. And, and, and it's his, he's the one that designed marriage. So he's the one that makes the rules for it in which it works best and it brings most glory to him and it works to function to bring life. Now, I believe that the church, um, not, not, I'm not speaking of our church in particular, but the church generally has not done a good job in many ways of reaching out to the homosexual community because we have singled out that sin, which it is sin, as greater than my sin of pride or someone else's sin of anger or someone else's sin of gluttony, as though that's the unpardonable sin. So we need to make sure that we understand that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He never ever compromised truth for the masses or for popular opinion. But he was always full of grace in presenting that truth. And sometimes we could be full of truth and not full of grace. And when we're full of truth and not full of grace, there's no attraction and there's no love that can be seen. When we are only full of grace and we compromise truth, then what we're telling someone is really a lie. Because the definition, if it's not true, is we're giving them a lie. So it's so important that we understand what God says about these things. Now, in verse 5, Jesus said, for this reason, for what reason? Because God was the one that created um, man and woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, when it says a man shall leave his father and mother it it, it says that in verse 24 of genesis 2 therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh um what human beings were alive at this point in time just adam and eve okay adam and eve do they have mom and dad no so is this for adam and eve or is it also a prescription for all of marriage it's, all a pres- it's also a prescription for all of marriage. And when it says that a, a man shall leave his father and mother, it means this. It means that the center of the family, the center of the relationship is really husband and wife. Because once a husband and wife get married, that becomes the center. And, and it becomes very problematic if after a husband and wife get married, that when the wife doesn't do things the way that his mom did things, that he doesn't say, I'm gonna go to mom. Mom, could you tell her that she's supposed to do things this way? Could you tell her that's the way you're supposed to do things? Or that she doesn't run to dad and say, Dad, could you tell him he's a knucklehead and he needs to treat me better? Now, I I, I haven't been through that. I, I don't um as far as being a dad, you know, none none of my kids are married. And I know that there's going to have to be a, a tearing away of the relationship somewhat, not of love, but of that influence and, and that, that really prominence because there's going to be someone that will be more prominent in my daughter's lives than me. As sad as that is, as terrible <laughs> as that sounds, that eventually that will happen. And as that happens, I think it's also important for this, if you are married and you have children, do not allow your relationship with your kids to be the center of the family. That is a part of your family, but the center of the family is really the relationship of husband and wife. That's the relationship by which that family uh, centers around and obviously our relationship with the Lord. So and then it goes on to say this in verse five. Um, it says, um, go back to, to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, verse five. Jesus said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So as they do this, it says in verse six, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, The word cleave, In the King James Version, it means um, to be glued, to be attached, to be joined together. Um, It says that a, a man shall leave and cleave, leave mom and dad, cleave, be joined together to his wife. And then it goes on to say that the two shall become one flesh. And if the two become one, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate Again, I wanna say this with um, an understanding and a sensitivity to backgrounds, to life experience, to things that we've been through. Um, and, and statistically today, one out of about 1.8 marriages ends in a divorce. So it's not one out of two, that's 50%. It's one out of 1.8 which means that in in our congregation that there are many that have been through divorces. And I'm not going into history or, or background right now, but what I am saying is wherever you are right now, whether you are single or whether you are married or if you have been divorced, it is absolutely important that we don't take what the culture says, that we don't take what opinions say, that we don't take what the majority says, But we look to God's word and what he says about marriage. And he says, hey, if you are married, and Paul says it this way, when you come to Christ, remain in the situation in which you are. In other words, if you have been divorced, you can't go back and relive that marriage. Especially, obviously, when that person is married to someone else. So at this point in time, you can't go back and change things. And it's important to know that when we realize this and we understand it, that in Romans 8.1, it says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So can God forgive? Absolutely. And maybe it was even more the other person's fault. But usually, usually, it's not just a preponderance of just one person's fault. Usually there's there's two people and maybe more one than the other But you know what? It's important that we see this because when God joins a man and a woman together to become one, um, I've heard of people saying, well, it, it was an easy divorce. But understand something about this. Whose kingdom are we talking about? It's God's kingdom. It's Jesus's kingdom. And something about marriage that God set up is that it's a picture to the world of God's love for his church. Something that God designed, and he is the one that pointed to to marriage and, and, and explained it like this, he calls us, the church, the bride of Christ. Now, if we took the model of today that as soon as someone is not pleased or satisfied with their spouse, they could divorce, what would that do for my security in Christ? Every time I sin, every time I mess up, every time I blow it, God, are you gonna divorce me? God, are you gonna leave me? But every time I sin and I repent and I come back, there's always this grace. And, and marriage is supposed to be a picture of that. It's not supposed to be a picture of perfection. None of us have perfect marriages, we all at, at times struggle. We go through difficulty in life because you know what? The problem in marriage is that there's two people married. And the problem in that is that one of them's a sinner and the other one's a sinner. And so that's, that's, a, that's a big problem. And when you see that in marriage, God says it's in that context. It, Adam and Eve, it says that the, they were naked and not ashamed. You know why? They covered each other. Do you know why? It was in the marriage relationship that there's acceptance. No one knows you better than your spouse. No one knows me better than Deanna. She knows all of my faults. She knows my weaknesses. She knows you know, the, the areas where I struggle. And yet in that marriage relationship, as she covers me in grace, it, it's a picture of the way that God covers us in grace. See, when when people are joined together as one flesh, And that's why, notice it says that they shall become one flesh. It doesn't say they shall become one spirit, right? So that means that the marriage relationship is physical. There is a physical part of the marriage relationship that is reserved for the marriage relationship. Because what the Bible says, again, not my kingdom, but God's kingdom. In in, in anyone's kingdom, they could say it didn't mean anything. It was just uh platonic oh it was just you know we're just friends there's no commitment there that's what the world can say and yet in god's kingdom he says no something happened there mystically that your soul was joined together you were joined physically but in that physical union that is reserved for marriage there is a part of you also emotionally and spiritually that is joined to another now why is god so adamant about when you're joined together not separating well so here's my little experiment on the love glue sometimes we say well you know it's it was a a friendly divorce and yet when two people are joined the word for the hebrew there is cleave it's joined as one glued together i want you to see something that happens so you can't really separate it all in fact in fact, I'm trying to do the best that I can in separating this and what I see is that there are parts of Sally that are all through there and parts of Bobby that are all through there. In a relationship that God intends to be one, when there is a tearing apart, this is what happens. There's a splintering. Now does God bring healing? Yes. Are there are there reasons that we'll get into next week a little bit more in depth as far as that God says, okay, I allow that to happen. That divorce is a way of ending a marriage that becomes harmful to life and harmful to, to my glory. And, and he allows it, yes. And, and at that point in time, um, it, it's important to know that in the same way that God is full of grace and truth, the truth is that we're, we're, to, we're to last. That, that has to be the mindset of permanence going into marriage. But there should also be the way that we deal with people that have been through that by experience. Um, I know people that have been through abusive relationships. I know people that have been, um, you know, they've been cheated on. There's been adultery. There's been some brutal things. And so in a person's past, we need to be sensitive to that. And I think that that it used to be that that stigma was so strong uh, of divorce that sometimes people wouldn't even come to church if they got divorced because they felt like they couldn't be accepted into the body of Christ. Now we can't do that. And yet at the same time, we can't compromise God's word. And so next week, we'll go more into depth into that. But today, I just wanna focus on marriage. I wanna focus on when it comes to permanence, imagine this, imagine if you, you were given a car and just hypothetically, you get one car. And this car that you get is the only car that you would ever get. You never get another car. You can't buy another car. What do you What do, you do with that car? How do you treat that car? Do you take it in for oil changes every 3,000 miles? Do you take it into a mechanic? Do you make sure that you take care of it? You don't drive it too hard. You're, you're concerned about it because that's the only car you're ever gonna get. And yet people don't treat marriages like that because they think, well, if it doesn't work out, you know what, there's always an escape clause of no-fault divorce. We cannot, as the body of Christ, go into marriage that way and then tell people in the world, hey, you know what? Marriage is between a man and woman. We believe in marriage when within the church, we don't even believe in marriage because we don't hold on to our marriage vows. So that is a very important thing. Otherwise, the world just sees that as hypocrisy. So let me end with this. I wanna end with sacred marriage. Um, There's a book, um, you could get it at the resource center here. I know we have at least one copy. It's called Sacred Marriage by a guy named Gary Thomas. It is fantastic. Um, Because the the title of the book, which would scare a lot of people away, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? (laughs) He's not saying that God designed marriage to not make us happy, okay, don't take that. But he's saying, what if in the context of marriage, there's some deeper things that is going on than just momentary happiness well let me share some of these things as we close i hear so many times people saying these things that i just want them to be happy whatever makes them happy as though happiness is the the greatest virtue that god holds as long as they're happy do you realize that i could be really happy in a selfish sinful life <laughs> Now, that's temporary happiness. If, we, if there really is an eternity, if there really is a God, this life is so short in comparison to all of eternity. So holiness is even greater than happiness. Now, in sacred marriage, there, we're complementarian, which means that in marriage, God has designed it. Not that, not that your spouse, and if you're single, Do not get married thinking if you only find the right person, your life will be fulfilled. Because in marriage, for those of you that are married, no, your spouse cannot fulfill every emotional, physical, spiritual need in your life. In fact, there are many times that the stress in the relationship happens because you feel like she's not, he's not meeting my needs. But marriage is to be complementarian. Um, Each has their role, each has their part, it's also to be a picture of the gospel you know what the gospel is this unconditional love it's grace it's unconditional love and it's commitment and it's a picture of of the gospel marriage should help us to grow in our relationship to god in fact i don't i don't i can't think of a um, an environment a uh, an incubator if you will that would be more conducive to helping me to display the fruit of the Holy Spirit than marriage. Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Notice all of those fruits of the Spirit are practiced with others. So marriage, it's not just about self-fulfillment. You know, we get it wrong when we do think of it that way. It helps us to grow in our understanding of God. It helps us to grow in agape love. Now, it shouldn't be the only kind of love in that marriage but agape love is a love of sacrifice. It's a love of choice. It's a love that says I'm committed. It's a love that brings security. It's a love that brings, it brings hope because it points to something that is beyond the temporary. Marriage, sacred marriage, should help us to grow in grace. We should grow in our grace towards others. It should help us to grow in hope, realizing that, hey, I have hope in the marriage because I have hope in God. And I also have hope that God will change me and God will change you. And it should help us to grow in our mission. If you are single and your only goal is to get married, and I do this in marriage counseling, I talk about what is your mission? Well, what do you mean what is our mission? We're gonna get married. I know, but what is your mission? We wanna like have fun and travel and we wanna, you know, we wanna get married and just have, and that's great. But you know what? There's a bigger context than that, that God wants to use us in our marriage. There's a growth in mission. So as we close with these applications, don't look for the, if you're single, don't just look for the right person, be the right person. Now you've heard that before with singleness, right? I wanna say this in marriage, because once you get married, you're still looking for the right person. You're still looking for that person, You're hoping to be able to change them into the person you want them to be. You know, the designer wife, the designer husband, just perfect in all of these aspects. No, seek to be the right person. Ministry together, do things together and realize that you're in it together and put that relationship as a priority. Um, We had our, our marriage ministry, our dinner fellowship on Friday night. If you didn't have a chance to go, you could sign up. It was just a great time just really good talking about things and and, uh, just the priority of relationship. And the bottom line is that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. I don't make the definitions of marriage. I don't ask God to bless my understanding of what marriage is. I don't ask God to come alongside of me and help me to build my kingdom. It's his kingdom. It's his definition. It's his marriage. It's his desire. And in there is blessing now, as we pray, and I'm gonna have the worship team come up and lead us in a time of prayer um, or a time of worship. A- as we worship the Lord, um, it is so absolutely important that we take time not just to forget the message because as soon as we leave here, the cares of this world, the busyness, sometimes those very things that God had spoken to us can get snatched away Let's just take these next moments to allow the Holy Spirit to deal with these things in our own lives. And I want to begin, before the worship team comes up, I want to begin in silence. it's t- It will feel like it's 10 minutes, it'll be one minute. And I want you just, between you and the Lord, to say, God, whatever you've spoken to me, however you've dealt with me, however you need to speak with me, I just want to listen and respond. So, silently, let's just pray. Let's um, bow our heads and close our eyes so we could focus on the things of God. Father, this morning, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, it's your kingdom and we are your people. So Lord, we're asking that however you have spoken to each one of us, first of all, Lord, I, I want to pray for those that that maybe there's a lot of guilt associated with even the topic of marriage, maybe because of past sins or mistakes Lord, I pray for the freedom that comes with with forgiveness and the freedom that comes with confession and the freedom that comes with repentance. Father, this morning, I wanna pray for any married couple, if maybe even silently, maybe it hasn't even come up in conversation, but one of them is just, just on the edge, just feeling like giving up. I pray, Lord, that you would give strength And God, that the message today would be strong in their hearts. Lord, for those that that maybe just feel sometimes overwhelmed by the task of marriage and realizing that, that Lord, I I fall short and I I don't, I'm not the, the husband you want me to be. I'm not the wife you want me to be. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray for comfort. Lord, strengthen the marriages that are here. Father, for those that have been through divorce, Lord, I wanna ask that you would bring healing. I pray that you would bring wholeness. Lord, that you would bring that sense of peace. And Father, if there are are things in past relationships that need to be dealt with, that you would help us to do that. Father, I also pray that you would bring comfort because Lord, so many of us at our our wedding, we said vows and we said till death do us part. And some people have experienced Um, the the sorrow of the parting of a a spouse. And yet, Lord, we just wanna thank you that it's a a wonderful picture of your love for us. Thank God it's all the way until the end. So Lord, we thank you for this time and we, we ask that you administer to us to the single person as well. Lord, may we find hope in Christ. And Father, we're praying that you would help us to be a light to the community around us. Not that we're perfect, but God, we're, we're really trying to, to please you and we're asking that your spirit would help us to do things the way that you'd want us to do them. So we give you this time now. Lord, bless this offering as we give it to you, Lord. Um, we, we pray that you would use it for your glory. We pray that you would use it to uh, be fruitful in the ministry, that God, you would use um, our tithes and offerings, our acts of worship unto you, Lord, to further your kingdom